Okay, Daryl, am I on? I think I'm on. I'll take care of all the electronics uh, before we get started. <coughs> let's, let's pray together. Uh, our Father, we are thankful. We're thankful to you, the creator of this world, the maker of beauty, the maker of order that teaches us that you are God. We are thankful, Father, for the opportunities that we have to assemble. We appreciate the facilities and the freedom and the uh, means of transportation, all of which makes it convenient for us to assemble. And we pray, Father, that our, uh, our songs will be uh, appropriate to glorify you. We do appreciate the promises that you have given to us. And we are thankful for the time that we have this evening, Father, to open your word. And we pray that you would be with us as we consider a couple of points from your scripture. Uh, help us, Father, to have respect for your word and to uh, attempt to apply it in our lives as we live each day. We're thankful for the congregation. We ask your blessings on the congregation, on all the efforts that are ongoing this evening. For all those who are ill and who are not able to be here, uh, we ask your blessings and comfort. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. <clears throat> There's a, a... Paul frequently speaks about the mystery that had existed until the first century, uh, a mystery from God uh, that was revealed to the holy apostles. And, and he writes about that in several of his letters. Uh, in Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 9, he says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. So he refers to a mystery of his will. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To the church in Colossae, he made a similar comment in uh, Colossians, the first chapter, verses 24 through 27, who now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God made known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So again, he refers to the mystery with a little bit different words, not mystery of will, but 
the mystery of glory, the mystery that's been revealed with reference to teachings to the Gentiles. In Romans 16, 25, as Paul finishes that letter to the church in Rome, he says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which, is, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made, name, uh, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And so again to the Romans, he refers to this mystery that has been hidden in ages past, but is being revealed by the teaching of the gospel, the preaching about Jesus Christ, the preaching to the Gentiles in the first century. And so if we were uh, teaching a class, and we're not much more than a class tonight, uh, I, I would start with a question. Now, what is this mystery uh, that God is now revealing that has been hidden through all of these ages? And uh, immediately there will come to your mind various possible answers, uh, all of which will be correct in some sense, and, uh, uh, but which together may give us a full understanding of this mystery. Now we might say, if we look at the reaction of the Jewish people, even followers of Jesus in the first century, we might say that the mystery was that the Messiah would be a suffering servant and who would be put to death. Because it certainly wasn't anticipated by the, the, the people of Jesus' day. They expected the Messiah to be a king on a white horse coming to rid them of all their enemies. And even among the church, even among the apostles and disciples, there was concern about this. We last few weeks we've talked about Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, and and these disciples are a bit discouraged. They don't understand what has happened. And so Jesus appears to these disciples as they're walking to Emmaus and talks with them. And, and then at the end, as he begins to reveal himself to him, he, he has these things to say. Let's go to Luke chapter 24 for just a couple of passages. Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to these who he is walking with, O foolish and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And so Jesus suggests to the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, that the fact that Jesus is a suffering Messiah and is going to be put to death, is going to be raised on the third day into his glory, is not the mystery. In fact, he says they are foolish and they're slow of heart to believe what the prophets have said. The prophets had revealed the fact that the Messiah would, be, would suffer. He would be put to death. He would rise again on the third day. And to the apostles that same day, later in the day when he appears to the apostles, he says to them in Luke 44 through 47, and he said to them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, 
concerning me? Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written that it, that it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all, among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so he says the, 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 the Old Testament, the, the, uh, let's see, his, his categories are the, the written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. Jim Wilson's been teaching on Wednesday night and uh, the lesson last week asserted that the whole, the whole tenor of the Psalms is uh, Jesus is going to die, but he's going to be raised on the third day and glorified. And in, and in some sense, when you get this sense of the Psalms having lament, oh, woe is me, but then finishing up with a praise to God, it is that message of the Messiah. He's going to suffer, but he's going to be raised. And so Jesus says both to the, the disciples he walks with to Emmaus and to the apostles on that Sunday that the mystery really isn't the fact that, that Christ has to suffer and die and will be raised on the third day. He says, in fact, the prophets have all been teaching this. Well, we might then turn to the fact that uh, the mystery might have something to do with the teaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, that also wasn't expected by the Jewish nation. And, 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 and here to, to the apostles on that day, Jesus talks about that the message of repentance, remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so maybe the mystery is, that the, fact, is the fact that the Gentiles are going to be called. Um, Let's look at uh, Romans, look back to Romans chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. In this passage, Jesus says, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to you, confess you among the Gentiles, and sing thy name. And again he said, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah said, There is not, there is that shall be a root in Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. And so Paul asserts that he gives four quotations from the Old Testament, and Paul asserts if you had been reading your Bible, you would have known that the Gentiles are going to be called. Isaiah, the second chapter, speaks about that, that time in the latter days when the message will go forth from Jerusalem to all nations, and all nations will be called uh, uh, to worship God. And so uh, it's asserted, I suggest, in some of these passages that the, the mystery is not that the Gentiles will be called. So then, what is the mystery? If it's not the identity of the suffering Messiah, if it's not the calling of the Gentiles, what then is the mystery? And I think from looking at Ephesians, and we're mostly going to stay in Ephesians now, I think we can begin to understand a little bit about what Paul is suggesting is the mystery. In Ephesians 9 and 10, 
And I think we've got that. I guess we don't have it on the board. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, and we read 9 just a moment ago, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now he gives us the phrase, I suggest it's a little bit, uh, uh, it's not as clear as it can and, and will be, but he, he refers to the fact that there's going to be gathered in one the Gentiles with, of course, God's own people, the people of Israel. In chapter 3, verses we read 3 through 5 in chapter 3 a moment ago, but uh, looking at that passage on the board in chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 7, he says, uh, I'm going to begin with 3, how that by the revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand the knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. So we, it involves the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be brought in. That's certainly new to the, to the Jewish nation, although it had been revealed in the prophets. But that, Paul su suggests to us, that the mystery is that they will be brought into one body. And if we look a little further in Ephesians, or I guess a little backwards in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, he says, Therefore remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were afar away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And so in these three passages in Ephesians, we have reference to God combining Jew and Gentile in one, in one body, in the same body. And I suggest to you that that's the mystery. And while a good Bible student might have understand the suffering Christ, and a really good Bible student might have understand that the Gentiles are going to be called, the mystery that had not been revealed is that it was to be in one body, one fellowship. 
And what is that one body, that one fellowship? Well, we don't have to read very far. We can stay in Ephesians. Ephesians, at the end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, we find uh, that God hath put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave, unto, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, even as we are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. What is the one body? One body is the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The body of Christ is the church. And the mystery that is revealed is that it is in the church that all men will be reconciled to God. It is in the church that the enmity existing between man and between man and God will be taken away. Uh, and that is the mystery that is taught by the apostles in the first century. And so what's the purpose of going through that uh, little exercise? Um, well, my purpose is to emphasize the importance of the church. It is planned by God from the beginning. It is the one body by which he reconciles all men. It is God's plan and his eternal purpose. And, and thus, I think we need to have a due respect for the church. And I'm going to make five propositions you may not like any of them. You might like some of them. You may even like all of them. <laughs> um, the, the, my first proposition is we won't fully understand the eternal purpose and wisdom of God without understanding the church. If we miss God's intention for the church then we won't fully have grasped all of what God's purpose and eternal plan was. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul asserts that it was the intent, the manifold wisdom, and the eternal purpose of God that it is in the church that God's plan would be revealed. Now that's a, I'm suggesting that in these days we don't talk about that much. Now we talk a lot about uh, God's love and care for each one of us individually. 
and, and we, we focus on that, as we should focus on that. We should understand how much God loved each one of us. I've heard Roy Donovan say a hundred times, if, if one, uh, if I were the only person on the, on the earth, uh, Christ would have died for me. And, and, and we need to understand that, that God loves us. He loves us individually, and, and He saves us individually. We're not saved as a group, we're saved individually when we respond to the grace which He has extended to each one of us who is called by the preaching of the gospel. So how is it then that uh, Paul would say that, this, that there is a mystery hidden for ages by God, whose intent was through the church, the manifold, manifold wisdom of God would be made known. How is it that it is in the church, in understanding the church, looking at his people collectively, that we uh, understand better the manifold wisdom of God? Now, we understand it. We, we understand it individually. Uh, and it's important that we understand it individually. These are not exclusive concepts. These concepts work together. But Paul asserts it is uh, the intent of God that through the church his manifold wisdom would be made known. Paul says the church explains the manifold wisdom of God. How is that true? What does understanding the church help us with as we deal with life, uh, life as Christians? a part of the body of Christ, a part of the church, but individual Christians. How does it help us? And I suggest to you that at least in one respect, the wisdom of God is manifested by the church because God never intended that any one of us would engage in this race through life on our own. It was His purpose and His plan that we have an association with each other, an association that goes back to the forefathers, even back before the church, as the writer of Hebrews points out for us. Uh, but the wisdom of God is that we help each other dealing with the Christian life, that we bear one another's burdens. Paul begins that passage that we're all familiar with where he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus, who, being God in heaven, did not deem that something that he would hold on to, but rather he emptied himself of that to do service for us. But the verses just before that say, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so with that instruction that we'd be one-minded and in association with each other, helping each other, bearing each other's burdens, the church goes forward, and each one of us goes forward. And I suggest to you that at least in part, that is the manifold wisdom of God. That was his purpose. That was his plan. 
that all the people of the earth would be called together in this uh, collection called the church, the ecclesia, uh, so that we might help each other walking towards heaven. And if we think about it, just think about the one ritual, if, if you don't mind me using the word, I'm going to use it anyway, the one ritual that we have in the church, uh, the, the ritual of communion. Uh, we gather together every week to participate in this remembrance of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And some people can be ritualistic. I don't, we've been taught very well that it should not be that to us. And I think we've, we all understand that. This is an important function. And consider how the eternal plan of God is carried out in this. Consider the perspective of the Father and of the Son sitting at his right hand. As the church today, starting in some time zone somewhere in the world and continuing around the globe over 24 hours, assembles together to partake of the same simple meal in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. That exists because the church exists. That is the eternal purpose and plan of the Father. And thus, uh, we should honor that. We should grab a hold of the benefits that come from associating with each other and helping each other. That's God's wisdom to help us in the race. And we should gladly participate and not forsake the assembly of this ritual, of this remembrance that honors God and his Christ, uh, that he has called on us to remember. So the first proposition is that we won't fully understand the wisdom of God, the eternal purpose of God, if we miss out on what he has accomplished in the church. The second proposition is that we will not properly and fully glorify God outside the church. Now this gets down to the old uh, proposition that... Uh, uh, we can see God in nature, and we surely can. Uh, the things around about us, both the small things of the internal things of organizations of life, all the way to the heavenly realms, teach us about God. And there are many who assert that uh, they can appropriately honor God by uh, separating themselves and participating in their personal uh, devotion and worship of God as the creator. Uh, God sits on his throne. And individually we can take that picture from Revelations 4 and 5. God sitting on his throne in power and glory and majesty. All of the great wonder that John through words led by the spirit could describe of God sitting on his throne. And yet... Uh, no matter how well we do that individually, Paul asserts that there is another element to glorifying God. In Ephesians 3, 21 he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, 
to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I, I thought I was using the King James for, this, uh, uh, for these scriptures, but I, I didn't know the distinction between the authorized King James and just the King James. So this is not the authorized King James, this is the King James. And so it, it's, it says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, or King James says, or by Christ Jesus. But in spite of that glory we give to God by our individual reverence to him, there is glory in the church. To him be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. It is the plan of God, as we have seen, uh, revealed in the first century. It is the design of God to create one body to bring together all men, both Jew and Gentile. Uh, and around the world, uh, that one body glorifies God, as we've discussed in our worship this morning. And my second proposition is that we will not fully glorify God unless we participate in that. Uh, all that we can do individually should be done, uh, but we are called to glorify God in the church by the assembly, by the remembering of the sacrifice of his son. And the third proposition is that we will not completely understand Jesus if we omit the church from the discussion. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I keep asking, beginning in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, or the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. Now, he's asking, Paul's prayer is for these Christian brothers, the brethren in Ephesians, that they understand something about the purposes of God. That your eyes of your, of, uh, eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That you will know the hope, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints. His incomparable great power for us who believe. We need to understand God. And he says he has given all of these things, all of this power, all of this dominion to his son. And God placed all things under his feet. All of this power, all of this inconceivable ability of God is placed in Jesus Christ. And he appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, he wants us to have this knowledge about God and to understand these things. These are things that we have to think about and understand individually. But as we do that, we need to realize that all of these powers, all of this hope, all of this great message, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's been put into Christ. He has dominion over all of these things. He is the source of these things, and he is the head of the church, which is his body. And so as we understand what Christ has done for us, uh, as Peter does on the, on the day of Pentecost, he calls on us to be not only believers, but to accept Jesus as our master. And we have to do that individually. But Jesus is more than the master of each one of us. Jesus is the head of the church. And we won't understand Jesus if we don't understand his love and concern for the church. We can grasp it in, 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 when we realize what he does for us and how he loves us. But until we grasp that he loves the church, we will miss it. We'll have a religion that's focused on how well we can associate with God and, and think about God and commune with God, all of which we must do. But if we don't understand that that is fulfilled in the church, then we don't fully understand Jesus. We've got Jesus as a head, a king, but we don't have him embodied. He is embodied with the church. He is a king. He has all power. He is the head of the church, and the church is his body. You can't see Jesus. You can't visualize Jesus if you can't visualize the importance of the church. And the fourth proposition is that love is fully understood by Jesus' love for the church. And I just put one verse there, but I'm going to read a few more verses. We, we just talked about, in, in the passage we just looked at, the, that Paul's earnest prayer for these Christians at Ephesus is that they would have this understanding about God and all of his power and all that he has done for us. That includes to understand the love of God. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. How more fundamental can there be? And we can't understand that love. Uh, we are, are said a different way. We will better understand that love when we understand the love that Christ has for the church. So in Paul's practical section of, of the letter to Ephesus, as he always does, he gives us this passage we're familiar with, beginning in chapter 5, verse 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, how much should you love your wives? How do you understand how much you should love, we should love our wives? Well, we understand it when we understand Christ's relationship to the church. For we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, that he, as he, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now, I, you know, maybe you don't struggle with this distinction, uh, but I've struggled with it. Uh, it's one thing to understand that God loves me, that Christ loves me. It is a deeper thing to understand that he loves me as he loves the church and that I should love my wife as he loved the church. Now, what does Christ do for the church? Is it just that he came and gave his body as a sacrifice for sin? We can say that with reference to us individually. But there's more to it than that. It's, his purpose was to prepare for himself a relationship that would affect the world. Just as we should love our wives enough to create a family that is something that we can feel responsible for and feel blessed by. And that's the way the Christ, Christ does for the church. It's not just that he died. It's that he died in order to create his body, a glorious body, that he might present himself a glorious church. Uh, and thus he nourishes it. Not only, it, it's not just when the robber comes in and threatens your wife, you're willing to lay down your life. It's the nourishing of the relationship day by day by day. And where do we learn that? We learn that from observing Christ in his relationship with the church. And then in, in this passage in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, the fifth proposition is that we will not fully enjoy peace if we don't understand the importance of the church. In, uh, in the fourth chapter, and we read a few of the verses a moment ago, but in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul writes to these Christians and he urges them to, to deal with each other in unity and in peace, um, that they should bear with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, what compels us to try to understand those people among us who do things we don't understand, or even more direct, what compels us, what teaches us to forgive, to put up with, to not take to law those who wrong us in the church. We all know it happens. 
And what is it that compels us to do this thing, to take this attitude? Well, you could say uh, it is the logical response for the love that God has for us. And it's true. I mean, God forgave us. Will he really continue to forgive if we don't forgive others? And in one sense, we can look at it like that. It's the appropriate tit for tat. It is the appropriate logical response to the love and forgiveness of God that we be people who love others and forgive others. That's easy. It's not easy. The fact that it's the logical thing to do doesn't give us the power to get it done. And where is the power? Well, part of it comes from understanding that principle, that what God has done for us, we should do for others. But it also comes, uh, Paul associates it here with the one body, bear each other's burdens. There is but one body. It is the body for which Christ died. If Christ loves the body that much, if Christ loves the church that much, how is it that we will be creators of disunity and not be willing to forgive those in the church? We can understand peace and unity, and we can strive for it, but when we realize that we've been called upon to keep peace among ourselves because God, it is God's body, it is the body of Christ, then that adds emphasis emphasis to our effort to get along with each other and to bear each other's burdens. Well, I've got one last point, which will take 30 minutes, and so we'll, we'll omit the one last point. Uh, um, my purpose this evening was, was uh, really quite simple, um, and that is to call to our minds something that we all know, something that we all appreciate, and that is God's wisdom in creating the church. None of us would dare uh, try to live our Christian lives without association with each other. I mean, there are just so many benefits from associating in, in the worship of God and trying to, to walk the Christian lives. But I suggest that, uh, that at times, uh, like many of our teachings, we can, uh, we can swing pendulums one way for some point of emphasis often really needed. And then when the pendulum swings back, it swings back not to the middle, but to a different point. And we all, we've all seen that in teachings. And, and, and it seems to me that we, we speak less of the church and more of we Christians as individuals than we ought. Uh, is it a matter of a correct principle and an incorrect principle? Absolutely not. It's a matter of understanding all that God has for us. And we need to understand our individual responsibility. Chris's lesson this morning was a very appropriate lesson. Where do you put you? Where do we put ourselves among the people who are responsible for the death of Christ? And we all have to say, I am guilty. And that's an individual look at that. And it's, it's an important look at it. We need to take individual responsibility. 
but there is God's wisdom, the mystery that's new. That which is new, beginning with the preaching of the gospel of Christ, is not salvation. That's always been promised. It's not that the Gentiles are going to be eligible for salvation. That's always been promised. It's that it's all going to take place in one assembly, in one fellowship, in one body. And that body is the church for which Christ died. And thus the church needs our respect. The church is God's wisdom. And if we will be wise followers of God, then we will both think about and understand and appreciate what God has done for us in the church. And so as a rather, rather simple point, I uh, uh, hope you don't, I hope you feel that it's been worthy of our time this evening to, to talk about these things. Uh, we appreciate everyone being here. There may be some prayer request or other thing that we need to discuss together. Uh, Blake's going to lead us in a song. If, um, if you haven't taken the Lord's Supper, it's prepared back in room 100. And so I appreciate your attention this evening. And uh, Blake, if you'll lead us, we'll sing our song. Jim, would you dismiss us in prayer when we finish?